Your support on patreon.com slash Solidarity House ensures that we can deliver this content to the public for free. So my name is Lawrence Grand Prix. I'm Director of Research for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. We go by our initials LBS. We're a grassroots think tank here in Baltimore, Maryland. So as Director of Research, I do a variety of things. Um, obviously, research is part of that in terms of our policy agenda, but we're not a traditional think tank in really just about any way. So a lot of the work I'm doing is working with folks in community who need um, help thinking through different political angles from different issues that folks are working on or just using the connections that we've built in a variety of sections uh, sort of local Baltimore politics, um, philanthropy, economic development worlds, educational worlds to kind of bring together folks who are already doing work in community and kind of using our expertise and our skill set to kind of add capacity and insight to increase the productivity and just the possibility of the work that people are doing. So LBS started in 2010 as a on-campus organizing group in Baltimore suburbs, a school called Towson University. The founding members were people who were on the school's debate team. So the audience might know a little bit about debate in terms of the academic rigor and the community of folks who traveled the nation, sort of debating policy in this really sort of abstract, but extremely intense and competitive way. And we were literally realizing that the people who we were debating and, you know, quite frankly, beating by using the style of debate focused on forcing them to think through issues of social justice, how it engaged in policy. Many of them were quite literally going to D.C. and doing the policy work and research that was shaping, helping to shape the policy agenda for the nation. And there was no one doing that for people like us and working class black folk from Baltimore. So we chose to be a think tank because we recognized the power of basically how the right took power. If you look at the Heritage Foundation and the ability to set agendas to research and pressure, uh, but we explicitly chose not to be a nonprofit, given the political limitations and the larger uh, politics and interpersonal dynamics of philanthropy and kind of tying yourself to that apparatus. So for the past 10 years, we've been working on a variety of issues, uh, while many of us working other jobs like being teachers, coaching debate, doing spoken word and spoken word education. So working on education reform, working on culturally responsive curriculum, started police reform work in 2013. So before uh, Mike Brown and Ferguson, we were in Annapolis pushing for different police reform bills, which set us up as the people who knew about the issue and were already doing work here in Baltimore in 2015, where as many of your audience might know, uh, there was a uprising around the death of Freddie Gray, who died in police custody while being put in the back of a police van, came out, came out of the van dead. And there were uh, property destruction in August of 2015. So in many ways, part of what I think we're feeling is that much of the rest of the country is where we were five years ago. So I think that's probably given us a little bit of perspective on this moment. But since then, that kind of magnified our work as kind of young grassroots activists so that we could continue to be in a lot of different rooms and have a lot of opportunity to influence criminal justice reform, to pursue a project around using black arts as a community organizing and community economic development tools through the Black Arts District, which we recently got officially recognized by the state of Maryland about a year ago. So they're doing a lot of good work, even in the pandemic. I'm personally working on cannabis legalization through the frame of reparations for the war on drugs. Maryland's probably going to legalize cannabis uh, this upcoming year. So just making sure that those tax receipts, which is probably going to be between 75 to $150 million a year, don't just go into the black hole of the state's general budget, but that actually redistributed to the communities that have really been hurt not only by COVID, but through 40 years of the war on drugs. And just bringing this general perspective to all of the work that we do as a collective, be it police reform, 
or any of the advocacy, consulting, and research work that we do to make money outside of the grant cycle and stay independent. I want to ask a little bit about your framework, uh, the way that you approach uh, politics and particularly the, the politics of crisis. Um, it seems to me that white bourgeois liberals often see democracy as current, especially in the last four years, as currently in crisis. There is a current crisis or we reach these times of exceptionality or, or pathological periods. Um, it seems to me that you and many others see the conditions of crisis as having always been present for many communities. And similarly, you know, when we talk, socialists talk about capitalism being about to collapse. And it seems to me that you and many others see that for many communities, collapse has been ongoing or already there. In light of that, what, what I think is that difference in perspective, what do you see as at stake or on the brink or those t- that type of phraseology in the November elections? That's an excellent question. I think our political methodology, um, first of all, it is a methodology and not an ideology. So I think a lot of folks get caught up with this notion of ideology and what's the ideal, perfect political framework. And I think we have an objective. Our objective is to increase autonomy, specifically for people of African descent, but generally for all oppressed peoples. And from that perspective, I think a lot of our political methodology comes from the analysis of work people from the African people from the post-colonial experience. And I think that just thinking through the question, the only real way I could describe this election is the choice between settler colonialism versus neocolonialism, with the Republican agenda kind of being the scorched earth was just going to squat on your land and take everything approach, and the Democratic agenda being much more the we need a stable seemingly legitimate political formation to justify our continual exploitation of this indigenous space. And I think that the story that actually just came out yesterday um, with the Chamber of Commerce basically firing its chief lobbyist because the chief lobbyist wanted to invest money for Republican senators in North Carolina and Maine. And the Chamber of Commerce said no, which basically means the Chamber of Commerce wants the Democrats to control the Senate because they feel that their conditions of capitalist accumulation will be more stable in the world of uniparty Democratic Party rule. And I just mm-hmm. thought that that was um, incredibly powerful, obviously underreported, but an incredibly powerful clarification of what I've been saying and feeling for the past couple of months, which is, it is an extremely simplistic and flawed methodology to obviously buy into the Trump hysteria, to think he's some sort of exceptional threat, but specifically, there are lots of powerful people who really view the democratic methodology as like essential stability for them to enjoy and operationalize their power. So I think about this through the lens of race, given our group is focused on the conditions of uh, African people. And I think one of the biggest misreadings of black politics is people uh, people underestimating the level of connection between the Chamber of Commerce and the White Citizens Council. There's a really interesting book called Race and the Origins of American Neoliberalism by Randolph Holy. And he's a great scholar that, of course, almost no one has heard of. But he goes into the archives of the city of Atlanta, the city of Birmingham, Alabama. The White Citizens Council literally had TV shows where they talked about their methodology. And it was essentially neoliberalism. It was essentially this model of exploitation that was much more culturally acceptable that was a calmer alternative to the bombings in Birmingham or the KKK 
but continued essentially racialized social control. Like that's what downtown urban development was. Like it literally is the economic playbook of Atlanta and Birmingham, whitening the urban core to create a safe, stable space for white business interests and then pushing dangerous black folks out towards the periphery. So to see the Democratic Party basically full-scale adopt this real estate-supported vision of economic development, which they will certainly call, quote-unquote, investment in black communities, and kind of holding this up as, you know, you must vote Democrat to affirm the struggle of your ancestors when the political agenda of Biden and the Chamber of Commerce and the Democratic Party is literally, quite literally, the economic agenda of the White Citizens Council. I think it's just stunning. And I think that we're really in a difficult position to understand that we're essentially facing elites who can statically choose between we're not going to completely raid us through things like the Trump tax cuts, and when they're going to establish a more stable system of social control through things like a Biden presidency, which will restore, which will roll back the Trump tax cuts, but only for very, very wealthy homeowners in blue states through things like eliminating the state and local tax uh, deduction cut, which um, Trump put in, and calling things like that pandemic relief and calling things like continuing to invest in uh, these sort of nonprofit philanthropic um, gatekeepers, calling that social justice. Um, So I think that when you view it through the lens of this sort of uh, history of radical struggles through this colonial frame, I think it really clarifies that there is a distinction between the Democrats and Republicans, but distinction doesn't create a fundamental difference for people who are suffering conditions of oppression. They're just two different frames of exploitation, and you have to be strategic about how you form your resistance in either frame. Is there uh, a policy agenda to be found anywhere in the major parties and anywhere in the sort of the centers of national power, even on the left, um, that is anywhere near the policy agenda that you uh, have at LBS? Again, LBS, it's important to understand what I mean when I say it's not about ideology, it's about objective. So many different policies could serve the objective, but it's a question of who has the legitimacy to operationalize these policies, who has the ability to interpret them, to enforce them. And the reality is even if the policy in theory um, could reflect this objective, in many ways understanding the political economy of the current political order really makes it so that even seemingly emancipatory or positive interventions could risk um, really, really hurting um, efforts to establish the autonomy of oppressed people, specifically people of African descent. I think a good example of this is the Jobs Guarantee. Jobs Guarantee is about establishing basically a federal program which will evaluate essentially unemployment and correspondingly invest money in different geographic locations into producing jobs that will establish full employment in each locality, um, completely independent of whether this will pass or not. I think Joe Biden has basically um, tilted his hand in terms of having this sort of austerity bug in his heart, which would problematize any attempts to push him left. But independent, even if this did pass, the question is who has the authority to decide which programs and job programs will be invested in different localities? I give the example of Baltimore, where they say grassroots stakeholders, but understanding the nature of what many have called the nonprofit industrial complex, what many people call grassroots stakeholders end up being essentially grass tops gatekeepers 
who are established because they have long-term political connections to this neoliberal political order, this neoliberal democratic party. And unless you have a very specific plan to undermine that dynamic, they're gonna be the folks empowered to make these decisions and that's gonna work out bad for people on the ground. I give the example of Baltimore where we have a huge, huge effort to build a maglev high-speed train from DC to Baltimore as the starting point to build a high-speed rail corridor from DC to Boston or New York City. Now, for most of the progressive left, that is good. That is the example of the sort of cosmopolitan transportation investment they wanna see. But in the world, we can't control the political economy behind that. That's gonna serve as a powerful tool to help gentrify Baltimore. And it's also gonna serve as a tool that we can't control who's gonna get access to any of the economic opportunity produced through that massive, massive government contract. And it's gonna to serve to empower essentially, again, this gatekeeper class of construction contractors who have no connection to community, who don't have any connection to the long history of black independent construction contracting, often with degrees of radical politics, even if they weren't directly unionized in those black contractors who worked in the 50s, 60s, and 70s to essentially create jobs for the black community. So I think that when you start talking about the reality of the black experience, where a lot of the black construction contractors were enemies of the union because the unions were racist and excluded them. But those were the people who still have this legacy of incredible political respect. And people talk about things like minority contracting in a way that challenges the hegemony of even the unions so that it doesn't even come up on the, on the political uh, agenda. Um, even with the Supreme Court, um, people talk about what cases are red lines for political support. And I've been saying for years now that if you want my support, you need to be willing to overturn the Richmond decision, which overturned uh, racial quotas in hiring because it was deemed unconstitutional. Yet, if you look empirically at cities that did minority hiring most vigorously, they had the highest rates of uh, employing the people who are hardest to employ, which is working class black men. So we know this works. We know the courts are the reason that we can't do it, but no Supreme Court justice is ever vetted on whether they would overturn the Richmond decision the way they would be vetted on things like Roe v. Wade or other decisions. So it takes autonomous political power to set the agenda and force these issues onto the ballot so that we can actually have emancipatory versions of many of these good sounding and actually necessary policy interventions, things like Medicare for all and universal health care. Health care just looks different when you're talking about black communities. Healthcare can serve as a tool of social control and medicalized oppression if it is not explicitly controlled by those communities. So I support Medicare for all, but I support it under the condition that black folks have the autonomy to determine our own medical systems, which might look different the mainstream medical systems. And I think that that's the conversation that isn't as prevalent on the left as it should be, because many of the folks in power to speak on the left weren't trained to this legacy of black radical, post-colonial, uh, independent political power that I think is really demonstrative of our methodology. I don't wanna go down another rabbit hole of police reform, um, given that we could talk about that for an entire hour at least, but, uh, I'm thinking also of consent decrees and the robustness with which uh, a supposedly a, a democratic DOJ um, would go after police reform versus the Trump administration, which has seemed to accelerate uh, police brutality and, uh, you know, give uh, explicit, you know, kind of license to, to racist policing. 
but again, on the ground, that doesn't always translate into real differences between Democratic and Republican administrations, right? I think it's actually far worse than that. Um, so we actually have a consent decree here in Baltimore. And, you know, we, we talked about it, we worked on it, we testified about it, but the frame of our testimony was understanding consent decrees are inherently legalistic processes that focus on lawyers engaging with courts. They are the opposite of grassroots organizing. So if you've ever heard of an academic named Gerald Rosenberg, he has a book called Hollow Hope, which I read for debate when I was about 15 years old. Well, I read snippets of it. <laughs> but I think his argument is very compelling in terms of, he talks about the women's movement and civil rights movements essentially treating the courts like this elite um, savior because of the legacy of the mythology of Brown v. Board, but the degree of resources, the degree of uh, legal resources, the degree of economic resources, and just focus. All of it was geared towards the courts in the 60s and 70s and 80s in a way that detracted from investing in grassroots on the ground political organizing at state houses, at city halls. And Rosenberg says that that was a mistake, that the movements were worse off for focusing on these elite, technocratic, court-based vision of social change. I mean, we don't need Gerald Rosenberg to tell us that because we already have Derek Bell who worked with people like Thurgood Marshall in the mm-hmm. 50s and 60s and 70s to do legal interventions in the segregation, only to realize that the results of these uh, legal cases was not better schools for Black people, which was what the community wanted. It was nominal integration for a small portion of the Black elites and the deracination of independent Black schools and losing an entire generation of Black teachers who were not hired at these integrated schools. Um, so when people talk about crit- attacks on critical race theory, I find it really funny because most of the people who are talking about how bad these attacks are, they do not understand the legacy of critical race theory in terms of it being a very material intervention into the assumptive logic of the current Democratic Party. Critical race theory says stop exactly. focusing on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Start focusing on the social movement, which can allow you to put pressure from a bottom-up basis for more radical material change. And to take it back to your question, The consent decree here in Baltimore, I saw an op-ed today in the Baltimore Sun, which crystallized perfectly why this is so bad. The movement to defund the police is something we've been talking about for years here in Baltimore. Baltimore, at one point in the 90s, had equal amounts of funding between education and police, $250 million apiece in 1993, I believe. And over the past 17 years, the funding for police has doubled, funding for education has dropped. So the call to defund the police is a basic recognition that you must invest in community-controlled alternatives to policing to deal with the root causes of crime. And why? What is the mechanism by which they inoculate themselves from calls to defund the police here in Baltimore? The consent decree. Police need money to implement these technocratic reforms from the top down, from the federal government, and they are citing this as the reason they cannot defund police in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. That could be no clearer example of what Rosenberg and Bell were talking about in terms of these elite technocratic interventions preventing more radical calls from the grassroots from establishing the center of the conversation, the center of cultural hegemony, and the center of political focus. Instead, we're still locked in conversations that lionize these elite liberal professionals but demonize the people at the grassroots because their radicalism is deemed too uncouth and impractical for the liberal political consensus. 
here in Maryland, well, to take a step back, as I said before, I view the presidential election as a referendum essentially between settler colonialism and neocolonialism. I think it's really important to understand that it's perfectly legitimate as an individual to not want to make a choice if those are your two options. There is a political theory that says, well, I'd rather deal with settler colonialism because when I fight that, I can have a more full revolution against it. And there are also people who feel I personally have a spiritual connection to politics and I can't have that stain on my soul for supporting either of these violent agendas. So I just want to speak out against the sort of voter shaming, which assumes that the only possible logical conclusion to political analysis is to vote. A lot of the people who don't vote are not underinformed. They understand that the violence of the American state is going to be done in their name, no matter who they vote for. So they choose to reject the possibility of associating with themselves with that inevitable violence. I think beyond, that's a spiritual analysis of politics that's completely beyond the scope of the liberal political order. But beyond that spiritual frame, I think, which is part of the distinction in terms of having a sort of historical radical pan-African framework, that's just a practical case that sometimes putting pressure on the Democratic Party is the only way you get anything out of these people. So here in Maryland, we're a Democratic Party state, we're a Democratic Party mafia in terms of complete hegemony. Um, state house supermajorities and the governor Democrat for sometimes 10 years in a row. And in 2014, there was a gubernatorial election and Martin O'Malley, who ran for president, a white guy who was former governor of Maryland, mayor of Baltimore, inspiration for Tony Carcetti in The Wire. He put his hands elected candidate, Anthony Brown, who was a straight up corporate Democrat. Anthony Brown got the endorsement of the Fraternal Order of Police in 2014, which shows you his political affiliations. And people said no. People said we're sick of these Democrats. They don't do anything. And they voted for Larry Hogan, who was a moderate Democrat, a moderate Republican, excuse me. And people said, oh, this is going to be terrible for you. He's going to destroy you. He's going to be evil. But what it did was it forced the Democrats to engage in material political interventions in order to win back the black vote. So we had voter reenfranchisement here in Maryland for the first time since people like O'Malley had this vicious war on drugs. That's entirely politically cynical because they were not caring about the lives of these people. They just wanted their votes, but they still now get the right to vote. We had um, a bill called Justice Reinvestment, which um, helped increase the incarceration and increase resources for alternatives to incarceration. It was neoliberal technocratic BS for the most part, but it still represented a huge shift from a state like Maryland, which has some of the highest racial bias and incarceration rates in the entire country. And we got real movement on investments in school construction and school funding. Now this movement is not complete and much of the school construction has not included a fundamental reordering of the schools to accommodate a, a vision of community control and social justice. But none of these things were on the table when the Democrats had a supermajority and they had the governor's office, which was dead set on enforcing neoliberal centrism, because what are you going to do, vote Republican? So I just think that the people who are talking about voting in selection, first of all, they have to understand that if I'm a regular person in Baltimore, I am thinking about first my logical credibility on the streets of Baltimore. When whoever I vote for does something stupid, people look around and say, did you vote for that guy? Whose man's is this? And I want to be able to say, I didn't vote for that guy because my credibility is all I have. 
because nothing's going to change out of the way. But I can at least maintain not just my street cred, but like my spiritual and psychological stability, knowing I'm not associated with my vote, with just rapacious violence that is the American imperial state. So that's a compelling argument to me. But there's also a very compelling practical argument that the only way you get anything out of a corporate democratic party that's now essentially run by the Chamber of Commerce is denied them the vote. And obviously, you're not going to hear that case made on MSNBC and most mainstream political networks. We're in many ways talking about a system that you know is beyond repair, and yet a system where there are nodes of engagement, just not the kind of engagement that perhaps the system itself uh, contemplates. Um, so, what does that? What implications does that have for organizing and for the way people should orient towards political power and uh, is that question? Is there a unique answer to that question for the black community? Well, the answer to your second question is yes, absolutely yes. It is a difficult thing to encapsulate with any sort of brevity, because the more I think about what people call organizing, the more I think what people call organizing, from my perspective, is usually disorganizing, like literally the opposite of organizing. So I see a lot of folks who call themselves organizers who come into the black community with the support of a philanthropic network or a larger leftist agenda, and they basically come to evangelize. They come assuming that the people on the ground have no indigenous institutions, have no indigenous political theory or DNA, and they need to be essentially converted to a leftist orthodoxy. So as opposed to adding capacity to the existing political efforts on the ground, they say things like, oh, all those efforts are capitalistic. All those, eff all those efforts are inherently patriarchal. All those efforts are inherently reactionary because they involve the church. So I need to purify these people by bringing them into the new ideology, which is whatever my ideology is, uh, anti-war movements, union protests, whatever. Similarly, so the existing capacity of the black community, you're essentially creating brain drain by taking people out of their indigenous context and bringing them into a network where they're dependent on you and your financial support and your social networks as the manifestation of their organizing, which again, to me, is a net negative. So the Saul Alinsky model is transactional. It's campaign focused. You isolate specific targets who have the ability to grant specific concessions. So we said things like, if you have a landlord who is not fixing up your home, go to their house in the suburbs, protest on their lawn. Their neighbors aren't going to like it. So that's going to help you get concessions, which from a purely transactional framework might make sense. But if we're talking about a, deep, a community who does not have discrete political issues per se, but has a comprehensive system of oppression crushing them every day, more than specific campaign concessions, not victories, concessions, they need a comprehensive structure and infrastructure of political organizing that they own, they control, that's accountable to them, and they can mobilize whenever and however they want. And not only does a typical organizing model not do that, is specifically built to do the opposite of that, to allow, and oftentimes some of the best and brightest of the black community, to be deployed by institutions that might claim to speak for the black community, but are not accountable to the black community on the specific issues that make sense for their leadership and not allowing the flexibility for black folks to have an organizing infrastructure that they can deploy comprehensively whenever and however they want. So when we talk about organizing as disorganizing, I think it's very, very important to understand the difference between those two because someone like Ella Baker, 
she specifically countered what I am critiquing about the NAACP. The NAACP is two organizations, one you've probably heard of, one you probably didn't even know existed. There's the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, or LDF, entirely separate institution from the mainstream NAACP. They're the ones who do all the Brown v. Board legal interventions and stuff like that. They have all the money, they have all the power. Then you have the NAACP branches and NAACP National, who's basically, in theory, a grassroots organizing entity. Part of Rosenberg's argument is that, and this is not even Rosenberg, this is folks like Harold Cruz in his book, Plural But Equal, explains the historical trajectory of the NAACP getting seduced in part by philanthropy, but in part by their own assumptions around what could work mm -hmm. into this legalistic vision of political organizing, which deracinated the grassroots architecture that people like Ella Baker were dedicated to building. She would go into towns all over the country, identify people who had grassroots connections and credibility in the community and lift them up so that they had the power to pursue whatever local agenda they wanted. And who shut this down? It was in large part the NAACP national. Because the last thing they wanted was to put money into grassroots organizing for people they couldn't control. So if you understand this history, I think it becomes kind of obvious that there are fundamental distinctions in what we call theories of organizing. And the dominant story of organizing works very, very well if you're like a foundation who wants to have a cadre of people who will implement your vision of what you think should be achieved. It does not work very well. If you view the autonomy of people at a grassroots level in the black community, to have the infrastructure to pursue their own political interests. Last couple of things I wanted to ask is just if there is anything that you are seeing around you right now that's inspiring, uh, and that could be you know anything anything except the LA Lakers. Um, and uh, as far as if there's anything that's bothering you right now that you know is trending now that uh, you know that is uh, getting under your skin. Yeah, so I think this is a very good dovetail with the previous analysis I just gave. I think the American left has fundamentally failed over the past, you know, 60, 70 years. Um, and I think we need to understand why. And I don't think folks have really been honest about the fundamental methodology of the left just not being successful in producing material results. And here's kind of how I frame that in terms of what's going wrong, how it might get worse and how it could get better. If you look at the 60s and 70s, what many of our elders told us was there was a iron fist in the velvet glove. The iron fist was COINTELPRO, something that is not talked about even today in many organizing spaces that took people who had a radical, fundamentally revolutionary view of the world and literally tried to kill them and produced massive amounts of political trauma, especially in the black community, which we have not healed from. So radicalism in the black community still gets associated with don't do that. This unspoken psychological subtext is because they might kill you. Um, but the iron glove, iron fist is one thing. The velvet glove is almost more important because with Nixon, with the Ford Foundation, with many interventions into the black community in the midst of massive civil unrest in the 60s, that was a vision that we need to incorporate these people into the system so that they can become defenders of the system. They can have a vested stake in the system. So you have the so-called poverty programs that produce a new generation of people who were formerly on the streets with radical community ties becoming essentially nonprofit employees. And that de-radicalization served, again, as a double pincer move 
to deracinate and to disembowel the radical potential of the 60s and 70s. I do not see the protests that happened in 2020 as reflective of truly radical energy. I see them as essentially Women's March style anti-Trump protests. But nonetheless, they have gotten the ire of the dominant class. So mm -hmm. I do right. not think it is an accident that you're seeing billions and billions of dollars pledged to support things like quote unquote Black Lives Matter in the midst of this current moment, in the midst of the economic, um, true economic devastation for the bottom third of the nation in the midst of COVID, there is going to be an extreme push to deploy radical Black political energy towards essentially serving as a new nonprofit wing of the Democratic Party through the lens of COVID recovery. I think that that's what these pledges for Black Lives Matter are. I think that is the new corporate Democratic Party friendly visions of anti-racism being produced like folks like Ibram X. Kendi and him being propped up really as sort of a demonstrative vision of anti-racism, which in theory calls out black elites, but nonetheless supports folks like Kamala Harris. And I think you're seeing things like um, in Purdue University, they were trying to purge the Women's Studies Department, the Global Studies Department of all the existing sort of transnational political radical gadflies and essentially replace them with, um, don't worry about it. We are modernizing our anti-racism at our university by bringing in Ibram X. Kendi as a speaker and Patrice Cullors as a speaker and bringing in academics that are more favorable to a more neoliberal centrist friendly vision of anti-racism. So I think that that's the fear that I have. I think that there are some positive things that are happening in the light of that. They don't have the same iron fist they once had. It is much harder for them to deploy naked, pure violence in the way they did with COINTELPRO. They really only have cultural hegemony to determine who gets a grant, who gets a job, um, which is a powerful source of power when you control whether someone eats or not. However, the institutions that are trying to scope this cultural hegemony, almost everyone hates them. <laughs> so the media, the university, they're still very popular on parts of the academic left, but regular everyday black folks do not feel any attachment to any of these institutions, which is part of what they're trying to change by woke washing themselves. So I think there are enough people who are in a diversity of situations who understand what happened in the 60s and 70s, who understand why we are not a nonprofit and why that is so important to the conversation that I'm talking about and understand that most people don't really have a real ideology and they don't have the ability to be ideologically landscaped against black radicals because they kind of like who they like, when they like it, how they like it. And you just can't tell them like this black person, don't like this black person because they don't trust you anymore. So the ideological violence they're trying to apply is effective, but only goes so far. Like we are very much, I think, politically in terms of methodology, the exact opposite of someone like D. Ray McKesson who is very much about empathy and good white people and appealing to their emotions, who actually comes from Baltimore and is in many ways a mirror to us. And lots of people for us come up to say, yeah, I get that y'all are totally different from D-Ray and I like y'all. Um, so that's a possibility of at a grassroots level, um, people resisting the cultural hegemony of co-option, but you're not gonna see those folks on Twitter because literally 80% of tweets are done by the 10% most active people on Twitter and only 20% of Americans on Twitter. So that's 2% of the American population controlling essentially the entire Twitter conversation. 
And all the people who I'm talking about who are our base, almost none of them are on Twitter. So there's much more radical possibility than what I think would assume with the mainstream political discourse, because regular everyday folks just aren't focused on tweeting about the presidential debate. They're living their lives. They're looking for solutions to their problems. And I think things that we do here in Baltimore, like the Baltimore Children and Youth Fund, which is a $10 million rotating fund where the community itself gets to decide who gets money. So they look at who gets grants and they don't see people they know or trust. They know are doing work and they see the Baltimore City Children and Youth Fund giving money to those people. And they say, oh, that works. That materially helps my life. And the Baltimore City Children and Youth Fund was a very intentional effort for us to pursue because it's essentially in some ways a dry run for what we want to do with that cannabis tax revenue. So there are people like us who are visualizing institutions stacking on top of each other, models that are establishing precedents that can be built upon to materially improve people's lives. But you wouldn't know it if you looked at the mainstream media because we aren't given permission by a white philanthropic establishment or a neoliberal democratic party to do what we do, we just do it. So there's no use propping us up as a model because that would give the natives bad ideas. So <laughs> I think that it's not hopeful, but it's not hopeless. And if you understand the methodological distinctions that I've been trying to flesh out, the more we build a consensus of not necessarily being entirely unified and that we're all doing the same thing, but we can still be together in terms of we are all pushing against this elite consensus that wants to force us to choose between settler colonialism and neo-colonial exploitation. If we can just be together on that fundamental political trajectory, I think we have a possibility of changing some of these dynamics. I think that it might be useful for folks to listen to uh, the podcast that we do. So for the past couple of years, we've been doing um, a more long form, in-depth podcast that's more inspired by like This American Life. Um, it's very resource and time intensive. So it's not exactly like uh, up to date what's in the news podcast. It's more of a deep dive, deep thought podcast. It's called In Search of Black Power. We've done, I believe, 20 episodes at this point. Each is basically like an hour long audio documentary. Um, and I'm really proud of it. And it's something I'm looking to kind of continue to pursue. It's just that the pandemic has made it a bit harder to find the resources and the studio time to pursue that. But mm -hmm. I think the library we have is um, pretty excellent. And you can find that basically wherever you find podcasts. Um, we also have writings and reports that we do. Um, so we did a large report on the human social service sector in Baltimore that really critiques the assumptive logic of whiteness and Eurocentrism and how human social services are provided to black folks. It's called When Baltimore Awakes. Um, and that's really a model of the sort of material conditions that we're trying to intervene on in terms of changing the landscape in terms of who gets to provide human social services to people in Baltimore. So I just think the links to those two things, I think that'd be a good encapsulation of a lot of the analysis that I've provided so far today. That would be great. Uh, thank you so much, Lawrence. I can't wait um, for us to talk again. And we look forward to sharing those links uh, uh, from you with our, with our listeners. Th thanks a lot. Great. Thank you. All right. Take it easy. Mm -hmm.